Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Well, hello. It's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's a podcast. You know that. You're listening to it. I'm very happy to be here with you. Uh, Lots of things going on, as usual. Uh, The one thing that um, I will say is that my mom and I were talking on the phone the other day, and she was like, so I guess sales are done for the Basic Folk Beanie. Um, and I was like, I don't know, it's, uh, it's still winter time, still pretty chilly out, uh, and she, I asked her how many she had left, and she said she had like, I don't know, like a handful of them left, and they're all in really cool colors, uh, and you can find out more information about how you can get your own basic folk beanie at my website, cindyhouse.net. Today we have another interview that I was lucky enough to record at Folk Alliance International, which happened in New Orleans. And today, very pleased to be speaking with Layla McCalla. There is a lot to talk about with Layla. The New Orleans resident has already had a really impressive career with her solo work, Carolina Chocolate Drops, and Our Native Daughters. However, it seems like she is just getting started. I literally had nine pages of questions for her as we sat in my Airbnb Uh, During Folk Alliance, you can hear about four trolleys rolling by the windows. Layla is smart, well-spoken, and so easy to get along with. This interview felt like a barn burner, if you can label interviews like that, like a showstopper. We covered her activist roots growing up with three very politically active adults in her life, including uh, her mother, her father, and her grandfather. She talked about her connection to Haiti and spending a summer there with her grandmother, She is known for her incredible cello playing, and it's so crazy to hear that she started her cello journey by mistaking it for another instrument when she was a child. She talked about her feelings of being a black Haitian American playing old-time music that has deep roots in black America, even though it's seen as being a white genre. And she talks about how the Carolina Chocolate Drops opened up that world to her through music and conversation with her bandmates. We get to Our Native Daughters, her band with Rhiannon Giddens, Amethyst Kia, and Allison Russell. All this and more. This was an awesome interview. I hope you enjoy. We're going to take a listen to a clip from her latest album. It is the title track called The Capitalist Blues. And then we'll get to our conversation with Layla McCalla on Basic Folk. get higher I've got the capitalist blues 
So you were born and raised in, where you were born in New York and mm -hmm. raised in New Jersey, mm -hmm. and your family has this like really impressive and inspiring activist background. Your dad was the executive director of National Coalition for Haitian Rights. Yeah. Your mother founded an anti-domestic violence human rights org called, is it Dwa Fam? Dwa Fam. Dwa Fam. Yeah. Um, and your grandfather ran a Haitian socialist newspaper. Yes. Uh, so it's a lot, <laughs> lot going on. Um, yes. What was it like as a child to be around adults like this, and how do you think it affected and shaped your personality? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I'm really grateful, you know, that I had, I knew that my parents were doing work with a strong moral compass. I don't know exactly, you know, I didn't, wasn't aware exactly which way that compass was swinging all the time because, you know, um, when you're the daughter of like human rights activists, you're like, where are my human rights? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I'm, I, I think that it did shape me um, in many ways. You know, my parents um, were, I wouldn't say anti-religious, but we're not religious. And so, you know, I went to uh, the Ethical Culture Society Sunday School where we learned about, like, all different kinds of religions. And, you know, in northern New Jersey, New York City area, it was mostly um, Jewish people. <laughs> and so, you know, I just feel like my parents were always just really pushing me to understand different parts of the world, different cultures, try new things, travel to places. You know, my dad has stories of me um, being in Haiti when I was two years old on uh, horseback with him going up a mountain and, you know. Um, <laughs> typical. Like, yeah, <laughs> typical, no, typical childhood. Stuff, yeah, memories, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, even my grandmother, um, my, my mother's mother um, was very unorthodox, you know, when it comes to Haitian culture. You know, they say Haiti is 80% Catholic, 20% Protestant, 100% voodoo. And my, my grandmother was a voodoo priest, which for her class um, was unusual. You know, she was a light-skinned Haitian woman from sort of like a bourgeois family, um, but who was practicing this religion that is so essential to Haitian culture. And I stayed with her for a summer um, when I was 10 years old. And my grandmother um, would take me on these expeditions where we would be interviewing street kids. Like she, I, and she was like, wanted me to be a journalist. She, I had aspirations of being a journalist apparently at that time. Wow. And so she really wanted to encourage me with that. And I, I'm like, you know, I, I just, I want to shoot myself in the foot every time I think of it, but um, I had a journal at the time where I like recorded these interviews and would write notes about what the kids were saying. And, you know, she was just, it, I think m my family in general was never the type of family that was like, we're going to shield the children from the ills of the world. You know, it was always like, that's what we work on. And, you know, um, I felt very invited into understanding um, the way the way the the unjust ways that the world mm. can work, you know. They're inviting you to like lean into the problems. Yeah, and understand that instead of like, oh, let's hide that from the children. Mm. Um, and so I've certainly carried that into, you know, the way that I'm raising my daughter. But I see how brave that is now too, because I think I took it for granted, you know, as a as a child. 
just like this is normal to me, you know. And now mm. I'm a parent, and I'm seeing, you know, the the mommy wars and all the, you know, different parenting techniques. And I'm like, what's the mommy? What the mommy wars? You don't know about the mommy wars? I don't think mm. so. <laughs> I don't like, think I know about that, Layla. Yeah, it's just like you know. Who's the best mom? What's the best way to be a mother? You know, everyone's oh. always like, I think it's intensified, you know, um, oh, okay. uh, in the past, you know, 30 years or so. Um, it's, it's not a formal war. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a battle for the heart of uh, the best mother. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Is it fought on the internet? I think it's fought on the yes. internet mostly. The internet. And, and the playgrounds, you know, yes. and the PTA meetings. Ah. <laughs> um, so you've said that your parents really wanted you to recognize your Haitian identity, but at the same time, like you're a kid in the suburbs of New Jersey, uh, where there's probably a lot of societal pressures on you as there are on all young kids yeah. in like suburban America. And right. I could be wrong, but like there are these pressures for young people to like be as American as possible. Right. So like, what was that struggle like for you as a kid? And like, maybe did you feel like you had like a dual identity? I absolutely felt like I had a dual identity um, growing up as a kid in Maplewood, New Jersey. Um, you know, so I, I find this is still true is that um, we live in a very segregated society. And even though we are, you know, there's no sign saying that, you know, black people and white people have to use separate fountains or separate toilets or whatever, you know, you go to any lunchroom in the United States and you will see that the kids are, you know, um, self-segregating on race and and sometimes class lines and, you know, there's a lot of intersection there. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I had very low self-esteem. I was always, I think it's also just my personality, I was always very much a people pleaser um, from a young age, you know, I was surrounded by adults a lot of the time and was very into getting adult attention. And I had a hard time doing that with other kids who were, I mean, kids are really mean, but also, you know, people would look at my features and comment on, you know, what I looked like or where I belonged. And, um, I had a hard time feeling comfortable in my own skin and really until I found music wow. that kind of, that kind of saved me. Hmm. Um, and talking about music in your house, um, there's a trolley. <laughs> um, you said your parents had their own taste in American songwriters like Paul Simon, James Taylor, Rod Stewart. Um, how did your family share music with each other and what music of theirs did you latch onto and vice versa? Um, I mean, we just had, I remember CD player maybe tape even, you know, like when I was growing up. And yeah, I, my parents always listen to NPR. So every once in a while, uh, th that's like the, you know, sort of media forms that I remember <laughs> as a child. Um, I don't know if my parents necessarily were sharing music with each other. It's more just like what was playing in our house. And I remember like Paul Simon, I remember Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind and Fire, um, Michael Jackson. I was a very obsessed with Michael Jackson as a child. I remember that. We had like a VHS with like some Michael Jackson videos on it that I would watch over and over. Um, and then, of course, my parents also listened to Bukman Experience, um, Tabu Combo. So there's like some Haitian 
Racine music, which is like Haitian roots music. Mm. Um, but, you know, my parents were also kind of like, you know, they were um, immigrants in the 60s. You know, they had immigrated to the United States in the 60s. And then in the 70s, they were, you know, teenagers. And um, so they kind of had that uh, that folky, you know, that folky 70s music they, they really loved. Um, too, so I got a, like a healthy dose of both of those things, mm. and we, you know they listen to music all the time. My dad um, actually introduced me to an artist named Caetano Veloso. I don't know if you know yeah. who he is, who's like one of my idols now. It's Brazilian, yeah, yeah, Brazilian tropical tropicalismo uh, singer, and so I got really into that music, and I think that's been one of the more influential styles of music for mm-hmm. me on, on my own like creativity now mm-hmm. um, because that music kind of m- mixes like traditional Brazilian uh, rhythms and music and you know Afro-Brazilian music with like American rock and roll and mm-hmm. I kind of live in that mm-hmm. space as well with Haitian music and even with Louisiana music so yeah cool. just Creole music in general cool and going back to it's, it's um, great to hear that music really helped you come into your own. Um, and I read this line from you that said, my first memory of playing music was at the piano with my first grade teacher, Mrs. Crow, mm-hmm. um, that she would come to your house for private lessons. And you say, I remember feeling very safe and loved, which is lovely. What elements of playing music now can you relate to those early experiences? And, mm. and do you feel the same about music now when you perform? Yeah, mostly. <laughs> Depends on where I am, of course, you know. And um, it's hard to slow down the adult mind, the monkey mind of like, I have all these things I'm worrying about and thinking about and trying to do. And um, But I feel like that is, you know, I do feel like music is my spiritual practice. You know, when I am out of practice or when I haven't had a show in a long time, that's when I start to feel really crazy and I'm like, What's wrong? What's wrong? Oh, I haven't been playing enough. I haven't played mm. my cello. I haven't played my guitar, you know? Um, I haven't sang. I haven't heard myself sing, you know? I haven't felt what that feels like um, in a while. And I do think that there is... I mean, music is home for me, um, definitely. You know, and at mm. this point... I mean, I've gone through, you know, multiple stages of you know, my family kind of accepting that this is my path. And, you know, for so long it was like, you need a backup plan, you need a master's <laughs> degree. And now I'm like, no, this is the backup plan. Yeah, <laughs> like, you it's know? working. Like, actually, the master's degree is like the the backup backup plan, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm like, it's working. And I feel like I just have a lot of faith in the work that I'm doing musically. And so... You know, you never know where it's leading, but you have to follow it. And and I think that that, that has stayed with me, you know? Mm. Like, just feeling like, I don't know exactly where this is going, but it's definitely the right thing. <laughs> mm. um, the cello seems like it holds a very sacred place in your world. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about how, as a fourth grader, this happy accident occurred when you oh, were yeah. just assigned this <laughs> instrument? Well, I was I assigned myself this instrument by accident. I didn't know what a cello was. 
So I had to, you know, the end of the th third grade, it's like, you know, at the time music was mandatory and everyone had to choose an instrument for fourth grade and there were classes in school. I don't even know if it's like that anymore. And I'm sadly, I, I, I guess that it's not, you know, mm. but, um, I remember I picked cello first and I thought that it, in my mind, I think I was thinking of a piccolo, like <laughs> a woodwind instrument, like a small, cute little instrument, you know? Was it the O that threw you? Like, oh, cello, that's I it. I think so. That's I don't so know. I just had no idea, you know? And like, my parents weren't going to like challenge me on that, you know? They're not right. like, no, are you sure you want cello, you know? So I picked cello as my number one instrument and... Um, not enough people had signed up for cello. So I I remember there was a cafeteria with all the different stations of the orchestral, you know, instruments. There were the brass and the woodwinds and the strings and the percussion. And I remember the teacher for the woodwinds being like this really cool young guy. And I was like, yeah, that's going to be my teacher. It's going to be so great. And I just heard my name from across the room. I remember my fourth grade self in that cafeteria peering over the woodwind table. And someone said, Layla McCalla, Layla McCalla. And I looked over and it was my teacher, Mrs. Marcus, holding a cello in her hand. And she's like, cello. And I was like, oh. <sighs> and so I got stuck playing cello in, um, in those classes. And I sucked. I sucked for a long time. I was not a good student. I was not focused. I was distracting all the other kids in the class. I just, you know, it wasn't something serious for me until I think some of the girls in my class started taking private lessons. And so I was like, I want private lessons. And, um, and so I started taking private lessons and I was still sucking, 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 sucking for another year, maybe. And then um, my, I, there was some kind of falling out that my family had with, with the teacher or like some kind of awkward, something, something went down that was not good. Mm. And it was like, yeah, we got to find a new, new cello teacher. And so my mom put out the word to um, my then, I think it was, I was in seventh grade. So it must've been 12 or 13. Um, and I started taking lessons with a woman by the name of Cynthia Longley, who um, is still a friend of mine. And she had just graduated from college and she was kind of a hippie and, you know, but she wanted to start teaching cello lessons. And so my mom hired her just on the kind of basis that like this would be an inspiring person for me. Mm -hmm. and, um, and my cello playing just really took off, like something just clicked you know, with this woman, and she felt that, you know, she saw a lot of talent in me, which what is something she? that no one had ever even, like, suggested before. Oh, like, no wow. one was like, you're a talented musician before yeah. this she moment. she saw your potential. Yeah, she saw my potential, and she passed me on to her teacher, who was a professor at Juilliard, mm. and so that really elevated my playing, like, sort of immediately you know and um I remember going and his name was Andre Emilianov he still teaches at Juilliard and is an amazing classical performer wow. um but I remember my feeling and and you know her approach to teaching me I was her first student so she was figuring out how to teach 
Um, and I think that that was also why she was like, whoa, 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 I don't know what to do with this, you know? Mm. Like, um, but she, it was a very holistic education. I remember her giving me recordings to listen to and bringing me to concerts and um, classical music yeah I kind of felt like she went above and beyond in getting me to listen to the music wow. she prepared me for auditions for chamber ensembles and orchestra and so she must be like so impressed with herself that her first <laughs> cello student grew up to be this like incredible <laughs> she's definitely very proud and um, it's just a really special connection to you know, just like the first person to believe in you. Mm. And, and, you know, that isn't your parents, you know? Because mm -hmm. my parents, like, believed in me, but they, like, they were just like, okay, you, you obviously really like this thing. We're going to try to, like, make this happen for you. Um, but, you know, teachers, like, are, like, such a bridge between the parents and the student, or can be such a bridge that is, like, very make it or break it kind of scenario. Like, if your parents don't get along with your teacher... Or if you don't get along with your teacher and mm -hmm. you're, you know, and like, it's just such a, everyone has to be on the same page. Totally. And so I'm just, you know, I'm just really lucky that my parents were like, okay, we're going to, you know, help you pursue this passion. And my mom, I think, grew up with a lot of feeling that she didn't get to do extracurricular activities. She wasn't pushed to do things in general, mm -hmm. um, but especially outside of you know, understanding her father's, like, political, you know, the movement, understanding the socialist movement in Haiti, or, you know, they, my mom tells me these funny stories about, um, like, her, the, the socialist experiments within the family mm -hmm. um, that really affected the way that she thought about the world and the way that she, you know, pursued her own ambitions. Um, yeah, so my mom had me doing, from a very young age, ballet, ice skating, tennis lessons, soccer. I mean, they have videos of me play, being goalie with, as a soccer player, like doing cartwheels and being a space, <laughs> total space cadet, you know? And so I think when I found the cello and I was like, I want to do this, they were like, great. We can, like, we don't have to wake up at five in the morning to do figure eights on the ice skating rink anymore. Like, we can, we can just do cello lessons after school, and she can do, you know, there's all these different directions to take that in, and um, I think they really were genuinely excited that I had a passion. I don't think that they expected me to take it so seriously. Mm. Definitely did not. Wow. Um, another thing about the cello is that you will often you, you so you're classically trained mm -hmm. in in the cello, and but you'll often use it as like a choppy, churning rhythmic instrument rather than a lyrical one. How did your relationship to the cello evolve from classical to like this scrappy underdog rhythmic companion? The other thing I've noticed about your cello that you that you perform that you uh, are photographed with mm -hmm. is that it's like it's it's it's, it's imperfect it's imperfect it's, a, it's like it's a road abused. warrior yeah <laughs> yeah it's i definitely abused. beat my cello <laughs> and it's good it's a healthy it's a healthy beating <laughs> <laughs> it but, likes yeah it. <laughs> um i definitely so i a couple things that a couple things happened in my life that kind of changed my relationship to classical music. Um, when I was 18 years old, well, first of all, I lived in West Africa when I was in high school. 
and I took a break from cello playing for a couple of years um, at a time when like I should have been like preparing for like conservatory auditions and you know I wanted to go to Juilliard I wanted to you know audition to all the major conservatories and you know become a classical cellist and like I think my dream at the time was to be in a famous string quartet and um, and to tour and perform. You know, I always wanted to perform. I really I love how that translates. Like that, yeah. A quartet of like incredible lady banjo players. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um, man, and that was like, it, I got, I feel like my story is like chock full of happy accidents. Yeah. So um, I went to Smith College for my first year of uh, college because I wasn't prepared for like these conservatory style auditions. And I used that year to um, prepare for an audition at NYU. I decided I really wanted to be in New York. That was always my dream for college. And I got into NYU. I basically just like harassed this woman. <laughs> Marion Feldman was like, you need to take me on as your student. I will work so hard, yada, yada, yada. And then when I moved to New York, I was invited to a party where I met a cellist named Rufus Cappadocia, who was playing with a band called the Voodoo Drums of Haiti. And it was just like, like I had never seen cello in that context. You know, the fact that you could play cello in Haitian roots music, I was like, what? This is an option? And I, it just kind of immediately like changed things for me. I started studying with this guy, Rufus, who's also a mentor and a good friend of mine now. And like the conversations that we would have about music versus the conversations I was having with my classical teacher about music were like worlds apart. Like, you know, Rufus was telling me about like trance music in um, Morocco and polyrhythmic groove and spirituality and, um, you know, colonialism and all these things that like are I feel like are really a big part of my work now but at the time I was just starting to like see that the education that I was receiving on the cello was like kind of presented me to me as like this is the way and I started to see that it wasn't the way. It wasn't the only way. There were so many different ways and so many different, you know, musical traditions and and then I also was a cocktail waitress at a, a live music venue in Brooklyn called Zebulon. I don't know if you had ever been there back in the day. Is it in Red Hook? It was, no, that's the Jalopy Theater you're thinking of. Um, Zebulon was in Williamsburg. Oh, okay. I've never and um, I started to see a lot of really out, like free jazz and experimental improvisational music and... Um, what we call world music, but you know, um, I remember like seeing Vieux Fracature there, and cool. there was a one of the guys that was working at the restaurant played the talking drums, and a guy named Bai Kuyate from Mali. And so I started learning about all these other different traditions. I started playing in an Afrobeat band with the lead singer of the Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra, Amayo, who's also a good friend of mine, who has a um, who has a band for a long time called the Foo Orchestra, inspired by um, Sun Ra and Afrobeat. 
and kung fu because he's a kung fu sifu so it's just like really experimental uh like sort of time and environment and um and so I just was like I don't you know I really I think the biggest thing for me was like realizing that I wanted to play music that was off the page um and that there are so many musical traditions where music is not notated it is it is um, transmitted and taught orally, orally and orally. And, um, and I felt really drawn to that, you know? I felt like that really deepened my relationship with the cello. It made my cello playing better. And I kind of just started to imagine what it would be like to create music from that place instead of just interpreting music all the time, you know? Mm. Um, and obviously traditional music is like a big part of my work, but um, yeah, it just was kind of like this whole paradigm shift, you know, where I realized like there's a space here to tell stories that aren't told in classical music. Um, and obviously classical music has evolved a lot. And, you know, I think that there are movements to make it more inclusive, but um, that's always going to be the path of classical music, how to make it more inclusive, mm. not the origin you know right um and so yeah just really i i became very rebellious actually i i was like thank you marion for getting me into nyu but i don't want to learn any of that stuff i just want to learn how to play the cello like can you teach me how to play the cello i don't want to learn the you know the concertos and all this stuff i'm not going to be an orchestral player i'm not gonna i don't have those aspirations anymore i want to I want to play groove and make people dance and um, and have fun, and not always be this like token, you know, black cello player mm. in this very colonial environment. Um, and so I remember her just being like, "I have never dealt with this before," <laughs> you know, in a cello student. You're like good because most people are just like you know on that path. Yeah. And even the education that I received at NYU, while I'm super thankful for it. It wasn't made for outside of the box thinking. It was made for this traditional path that I don't even know if that exists anymore. Mm. You know, I remember like taking this like music business class that was all teaching me how to deal with orchestral contractors. I was like, this is not going to be part of my life. Mm. So uh, you know, the world has changed, and I think education is like still catching up to that. You moved to New Orleans ten years ago from New York. And mm -hmm. you said New Orleans gave me the opportunity to just slow down a little bit and hear the music I wanted to make. Um, what was the transition like for you from New York to New Orleans? Like, did you take to the pace right away? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In New York, I was just like, I was really over like exerted in all these ways that I didn't want to be. You know, I was doing a lot of things. I was playing in like so many different bands. I was recording on all these people's records, like as a, you know, as a, as a like session cello player kind of thing. I had my own band, but I was kind of like, eh, I don't know if I even like my own band. I don't even know if I like my own music. Um, I was bartending. I was playing at a church. I was teaching. I was just very um, hustling all the time. And I felt like New Orleans gave me the opportunity to not be hustling, to hustle in a different way, hustle in a way that like worked for me. Mm -hmm. 
I moved to New Orleans and, you know, as much as I'm not, I don't consider myself a classical musician, like, it is a part of me. It's a part of my playing and um, it's how I started playing the cello. So I was playing Bach in the French Quarter, making my living that way, like literally just getting up in the morning, put my cello on my back, got on my bike, ride into the quarter, set my stuff up, play for a few hours. Like I, I practiced more that year, I think, of my life than like even some of the times that I was in college. Hmm. You know, and certainly after college, like I, I, I started to like have a practice of playing cello again and like, you know, performing and just putting myself out there and being in front of whoever and not really. Yeah, just learning to just do my thing, regardless of who is watching and who's around. And, you know, that's a, that was an education in and of itself in a completely different way. And. And then it also gave me the space to like explore all these different types of music that you know are rooted in Louisiana, like Cajun music and Zydeco, and started getting into Creole music and reading about the history of New Orleans and kind of realizing like, wow, I'm kind of like in the perfect place for like deepening my understanding of my heritage. Um, and that's when things started to really click. Um, I would go and like see lots of like traditional jazz, and um, and I was kind of astounded because everything I was reading about trad jazz was that it was black music, but the scene that I was kind of exposed to and going to see music a lot was mostly white, and I'm like, what has happened here? Mm. Um, what is going on? And so it actually. I remember that and reading this book called The World That Made New Orleans by Ned Sublette made me wonder what is traditional Haitian music like? Because it talks a lot about, you know, the Haitian Revolution and the effect of, um, you know, Haiti being the first black independent nation and the migration to Louisiana, which was, you know, a third of the size of the United States now, um, doubled the population of Louisiana after the Haitian Revolution because there were so many migrants from Haiti um, coming from Haiti to Cuba and to New Orleans. And, and some of them went back after things had, you know, settled down a little bit. And so, you know, I started to understand this feedback loop and, and that got me into Haitian traditional music. And I'm still on that path, you know. For two years, you were in the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Mm -hmm. Can you tell the story of how you joined the band? Yes. So I was on Royal Street playing my cello one day, and a man named Tim Duffy came and approached me in the street. And he asked me if I'd met Sabine McCalla, who's my sister. Sabine had met the Carolina Chocolate Drops at a show in Asheville, North Carolina. Is she also a musician? And she's also a musician, and she also lives here now. She didn't live here at the time, but um, she had sent Tim to the coordinates of where I'd be on the street. She said, my sister's going to be on Royal and Conti. And so he came up to me and he was like kind of scoping me out. And I remember thinking, this is weird, but kind of cool. Like, who is this dude? <laughs> and then we got talking and he told me, oh, I'm the, you know, I'm the manager of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And at the time, I had just started getting into old time music and country music and 
and playing fiddle tunes on cello. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I had also come to New Orleans armed with a few recordings that I had made of something called the Langston Hughes Project Mm -hmm. that were um, compositions that I had written to Langston Hughes' poetry. And so I got to just talk to him, and he was just like, whoa, you're really interesting. And I didn't know at the time, but there were you know, shifts happening in the personnel of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. So he actually flew me to Greensboro, and I spent a couple of days with Rhiannon, playing music, talking, kind of connecting. A few months later, I was at Buddy Miller's studio in Nashville recording Leaving Eden. And I had, you know, I didn't know who any of these people were. I was not, I was totally green, you know, on the music industry in general, but also, you know, particularly the Americana scene. And like, I just had no clue um, what was really going on. But I was like, all right, I'll play some cello on this and just played what I heard. And, And then a few months later, I did a show with them. And then they invited me on tour. And then they were like, well, do you want to do this, you know, in a more permanent kind of way? And and so I took the opportunity, and um, it was a huge, huge, huge education for me. So I've read about and thought about, I think it's, it's, a conversa- it's a conversation that I think is coming more to the surface for white people mm-hmm. um, about black musicians playing country music and kind of taking back minstrel music mm-hmm. from the, the stereotype that was given to it by, like, white performance performers and audiences like over a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. At what point did you learn that history and how did it, how did that hit you? Oh, well that was certainly through the Carolina chocolate drops. Like I had never heard of minstrel music, you know, um, which is really like the antecedent to jazz, which is interesting, you know? Yeah. I also like, you know, I remember Dom just being like, oh, do you know about Ma Rainey? Do you know about Bessie Smith? Do you know about, you know, um, all these people? I'm like, well, I know about Billie Holiday, but that's like 40 years after that, you know, Mm -hmm. after Mm -hmm. some of these earlier singers or 20 years after, you know, in the case of Bessie Smith. But um, yeah, I started learning about, oh, this is how black musicians made a living. Um, And this is how... This was kind of like the beginning of the identity of American music, um, was kind of the spectacle of black performance. Um, and it really, you know, it kind of ties in with like even just the banjo being a West African music uh, instrument and coming to this country through slavery and, and us just so many things that we just don't want to talk about in our culture because they're painful and uncomfortable. You know, I think that that was the lesson from from all of it. For me, it was like, oh, there's like all this history that's just kind of buried because it makes so many people uncomfortable because it's been appropriated so many times mm-hmm. and in so many different ways by both black and white people in, you know, at different times throughout history. And um, And maybe appropriation isn't even the right word for it. Maybe it's more just... Um, that's who we are and that's our culture and that's our music and it's been labeled with stereotype throughout history um, in order to serve 
a larger political narrative, in my opinion, you know? Um, but we had lots of conversations about that in the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and I really learned a lot about that from particularly Dom and Rhiannon and Hubby because I was, you know, pretty green on American mm -hmm. history and American music history. So again, it just kind of fed, all of this stuff kind of continues to feed into my work in mining Haitian old songs and Haitian history and, you know, understanding that there's a bigger holistic picture to the, um, there's no straightforward narrative to understanding how music becomes mm -hmm. music or how culture becomes culture. Um, and I think that that is what is left out of so many of our history books, you know? Yeah. Is that we just are offered this one version of how things went and that's why things are the way they are when really it's like there's like a thousand different ways that things went that affected different sounds and different performers and different interpretations and, you know... Um, so I'm, I, I really love living in that space, just like mentally understanding all of those threads and, yeah. and tying them together and, and yeah, and, and, you know, continuing to understand that it's not all black and white, not to be right. <laughs> cliche, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, well, um, that's, uh, that's exactly it. Like. I lived in Pittsburgh for like 10 years and mm -hmm. Stephen Foster is from Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. He was born there and the city has like such great pride in Stephen Foster. Except learning about like what Stephen Foster was doing, like appropriating minstrel music from black musicians, it kind of like changes everything. There's there's this was this statue in Pittsburgh that I cannot believe it was like just taken down a couple of years ago. It was Stephen Foster, and then underneath him was like a black musician with a banjo, like oh looking god. up at him. Oh god! Right, <laughs> and people were like, "Why is this still up?" I think yeah. they they like just took it down. Problematic. <laughs> yeah, extremely. Um, so, can you talk about the responsibility you feel when it comes to like creating conversations about the history of black music and beyond? Um, like what is the balance like in terms of getting the people who need to listen to you to actually like stop and hear what you're saying and like your feelings about black artists making white people comfortable versus just like saying the hard truth, being unapologetic about it. Um, you know, when do you approach it with politeness versus like the well-justified anger and frustration? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think for me, like, I've realized, you know, that, and more and more, you know, I start to see, like, human rights and issues of social justice as really the reason why I make music. So for me, it's not a question of, like, it's not, it's not an option for me to not talk about those things in my work like that's the, that is the artist that I am and I can't help myself um, and you know I definitely you know there's a lot of painful things happening in our world that make me angry but I don't anger is not a connector 
you know mm. um anger is kind of like a deflector chills yeah <laughs> that's so true it, it's true i mean in any interaction you know um anger just never brings people together um and i think that i really in general just kind of try to talk about stories of our humanity and why we all deserve certain things. We all deserve love. We all deserve food. We all deserve shelter. We all deserve happiness, you know? And then what does that mean? And then what are the things that hold us back from that? Or what are the things that hold certain populations back from that over others? And, mm -hmm. you know, why do these inequalities exist? I'm a lot more interested in asking questions than in telling anybody what to think. And yeah, so I, you know, and I am frustrated, you know, with the state of the state of affairs and I'm frustrated with the status quo, but I'm, I don't think anger is anger with that isn't channeled into something productive, I think is just not as useful. It actually just kills you. Right. It eats you. That you quote know? of like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we all do it, you know? Yeah. I, I'm, I'll, I'll do it many more times before I die. But right. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Not to you. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you know, but in so many ways, I think that we all do that. And that's, um, that's what makes us human. But... It also makes us human to be able to um, create something more productive out of it. Your latest album, The Capitalist Blues, uses New Orleans music to explore the ways that capitalism affects us mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, which, wow. Um, <laughs> that has nothing to do with the question I'm going to ask right now. Okay. Um, what role did Preservation Hall play in the album? Oh, Preservation Hall was just so supportive. They're so supportive. They really just want the best for everybody. Um, so they have a really, really special place in my heart. Um, but they they let me record Capitalist Blues at Prez Hall. The title track. Yeah. It's cool. Like totally, you know, it might as well have been recorded on tape, you know. Mm. Um, it wasn't, unfortunately, because tape is expensive. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, so that wasn't in the cards for this particular recording. But um, yeah, they let me use the space, which is you know a lot. Um, and a lot of the people that play there, there, there um, was a band called the Palmetto Bug Stompers. That was like kind of reunited for this. Um, and you know the, what the Palmetto Bugs are. No. Uh, palmettos are these really uh, beautiful, like, palm-like fronds that live in the swamp. But the palmetto bugs are those huge, disgusting cockroaches that you see all over New Orleans. And, um, and so they had a band called the Palmetto Bug Stompers. And a lot of the members of that band kind of came together to play the song Capitalist Blues. And I always imagined it. Like, when I was writing that song, I was like, this is like a trad jazz song. I was thinking of my friends Tuba Skinny, you know, and how they would interpret it. And then when I brought on uh, Jimmy as a producer, he was like, let's get Shannon Powell to play drums and let's get Carla Blanc to play banjo and let's get Bruce Brackman to, you know, do a crazy solo and let's get Will Smith on um, 
you know, let's get Will Smith on trumpet, let's get Ben on piano, let's get John Gross. Like we just did the whole, the whole jazz thing, mm. and um, it was so fun. It was so fun. Like seriously, <laughs> it sounds that, very. Fun. It was so fun. <laughs> like it was like I'm in my like dream fantasy jazz world right now. Nice like I'm at Prez Hall with these incredible, you know, culture bears and musicians who work so hard at upholding, you know, trad jazz, and it was just perfect, you That's know. Great. Uh, Jimmy Horn is um, the producer. He's a well-respected New Orleans force, it sounds like. Yeah. You put a lot of trust in him, and it seems like you connected very well with him. And I watched this video where you were talking about how you would ask him... You, you, would, you were, like, not feeling it, and you would ask him to, like, dance in a way that helped you feel the vibe of the song. Right. Um, can you talk about your relationship with Jimmy and what you have in common? I think Jimmy has a um, great, great, great reverence for Afro-diasporic music. He's very interested in understanding all these different traditions and and in really knowing where the music comes from. And so we really align in that way. We also um, communicate very directly. And so that really works for us. Like some people I think could be put off or, you know, and also like I just think that his aesthetic is so, he has really, really strong aesthetics that I really admire, you know, because I... I kind of like, I think I have strong opinions about like how things should sound, but Jimmy's are even stronger than mine. And so like, it, it was nice to be able to lean into that, you know, instead of like my first records, I kind of was like, eh, is this good enough? Is th was this the right take? You know, should I do the vocal again? Should I not? Because I was self-producing. So it's like, I'm just reflecting my strong opinions back to myself and then when there's like a moment of like uh, I'm not sure of the direction I felt like Jimmy was always able to come in and say no this is what we do and this is the smartest most clear path forward um, I think he also just he just has an incredible musical imagination that really fit these songs well and I think he also had a vision of this being like a real New Orleans export you know, um, not having it, you know, fit into like this sort of like general Americana thing, you know, like let's make a real New Orleans record that's about New Orleans, which I feel like is the perfect city to discuss capitalist blues. I mean, look at the Hard Rock Hotel um, <laughs> collapsing in on itself right here at Folk Alliance. It's just like, yeah, we just see, you know, um, a lot of the things that I'm addressing in the songs, I feel like I see them every day in this city. And What's going on with the Hard Rock? Oh, you don't know about that? No. Uh, there was a Hard Rock hotel that was being built that collapsed. Oh, physically collapsed. Phys physically collapsed during construction. Oh. And people died. Oh, no. The You know, some of the workers there were actually like held a protest and went on strike at some point. Some of those people have since been deported wow. in order to silence them from participation in an investigation. The city is in cahoots with the people who were in charge of constructing Hard Rock Hotel. There are still two dead bodies inside of there. No. It's dark. 
it's really dark, fucked up, capitalist bullshit. Yeah. Wow. I don't know any other better way to describe it. Um, yeah. Oh, and it's terrible. really sad. Now they're talking about taking down all these historic buildings surrounding the Hard Rock Hotel location in order to be able to destroy the building because they can't take it down safely the way it is now is their argument. But it's just like, you know, of course the public is being kind of cut out cut out of the conversation wow. of how, what, what the best route is to do for the city. And it's just, it's just sad. It's all around just very sad and, and shameful. And, and all these things, you know, all the, after it happened, all these articles about all this corruption and the inspector and the inspection process and mm -hmm. the inspector's office, you know, there was clearly not enough oversight in the planning of the construction of this hotel. And if the hard rock you know, mm -hmm. hotel as an entity can do that in New Orleans and not, no one's brought to trial. Right. No one's held responsible in this bigger way that we just say, oh, whoops. Like, there's got to be, there's, a, there's no, uh, no one's being held accountable. Wow. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, that and yeah, I don't know. Just to seeing the inequality everywhere to all the homeless people under the Claiborne Bridge. You know, even the Claiborne, that where our highway is, that used to be like the center of black commerce in New Orleans. Mm. And they took down all the trees and they built a highway through it. You know, you just see how these things are systemic and legal, you know? Mm -hmm. Daughters is your project with Rhiannon, Amethyst, Kia, and Allison Russell. You have said of that project, this was a very validating experience for all of us because we weren't centering any kind of sanitized narrative about what this country is and how we've gotten to where we are. Huh, this mm -hmm. kind of sounds very similar to what we were just talking about. Can you expand on that thought? Yeah, I think that we were just being real you know, um, about our experience. We were being real with each other um, and being real with ourselves and wanting to create from that place, you know, and not just be the good black banjo girls, <laughs> you know, or the good black banjo women, I should say. Um, yeah, just like not, not make an album that's about making people happy, making an album that's about making people think, mm -hmm. you know? And I think we were all very aligned in that. How and also making each other think, you know? I mean, I'll, cool. I won't, I, I, I definitely was just like trying to finish this song and needed help. And, you know, Allie in particular was really there for me when I needed a, a push in a certain way. And I think that we all kind of do that for each other. Mm. And that's what's really cool about the project. I saw this promo shot of you guys. It, it looked like um, the cover of the record, but a different angle. I was telling Lindsay that 
um, Amethyst had her car keys like hooked on her belt and I was just like laughing when I noticed that I was like that is so funny and, like, yes. no one was like Amethyst why don't you take your car keys off your right, right. off your belt right but anyways um, we really didn't know that that record was gonna take off in the way that it has wow yeah we, we weren't like we're gonna like make a super group and you know mm. make a a record that's gonna like stand the test of time. Like we were just kind of like, this is gonna be a cool little side project, isn't it? Right. And now it's kind of like, whoa, the response has been so powerful that we're like, well, we must be onto something. Should we do it again? Yes. Um, and that's that's where <laughs> we're at now. It's well, like, cool. okay, how how do we do it? And you know, what what do we like about what happened, and how do we build on that? You and your husband have a family. With, do you have three children? Mm -hmm. Okay, including twins? Yes. Boys? A boy and a girl. A boy and a girl. Cute. Yeah, they're um, really cute. <laughs> when you had your first child, Delilah, mm -hmm. okay, you were not prepared for the postpartum experience, and it doesn't seem like you had postpartum depression, but there is still this like huge range of emotions that you experience. Um, what was it like to actually build up the confidence in being a parent? And when did, when did you realize that was actually a thing that you needed to do? Oh my God, I'm still realizing it. <laughs> <laughs> it never ends. I think when I had thought about having kids, I just thought, I'm going to have this baby. It's going to be the most perfect little person ever. <laughs> and I'm going to be the perfect mom. <laughs> <laughs> and all of that is just, you know, like people are who they are. And so it's like this incredible learning experience of like, wait a minute, who are you? You know, I gave birth to you. You're from me, but you are, um, you don't belong to me. And, you know, like you're going to one day like grow up and like have to be released in the world and like be your own person. And, you know, how do I, now I'm like, okay, how do I guide her through that? Because I thought it was just like, you have this baby and you have this incredible connection. I just remember giving birth and being like, what the hell just <laughs> happened? Why didn't anyone tell me how intense this was going to fucking be? You know, <laughs> who the hell is that? You know, re referring to my husband, who is this baby? who needs everything from me. And then on top of that, I'm going to like release an album and tour. What? Who's going to help me with that? You know? So it was just like, I just felt like things were going to magically come together and there's a lot of magic, but it does not magically come together. It is like, you got to plan and be prepared. And I think that I just wasn't prepared, you know, cause I just, I'm also a very intuitive person and I'm just like, we'll figure it out, you right. know, like get everything in the car and just go and we'll figure it out on the way. <laughs> and then on the way, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I should have thought of a couple of things that now I know to think about. So it's just, again, it's been a very, I feel like Delilah is like my greatest teacher. Like she has molded me into the mom that I am. And then I'm also like, how do I not let her manipulate me? <laughs> because now she's five years old and she's like, wait a minute, can I be the boss? Like maybe I'm the boss, you know? And I'm like, ooh. And you know, before that I thought it was like, no one's gonna be the boss. We're just all gonna learn from each other. And now I'm like, oh no, I have to lay the smack down sometimes. And it's hard, you know, it's hard to like 
teach boundaries. Mm. Um, it's hard to set boundaries. It's hard to even know what the boundaries are. Um, and so it's a practice, you know, I think being a mom, I've realized it's really a practice and I try to be gentle with myself and I try to be gentle with everyone around me. And sometimes that's easier than other times. Um, mm. And so you got to really cherish the moments where it, you have a little bit of ease. Um, but yeah, I've realized that, um, you know, it was never an option for me to not continue like doing music, to not continue touring. Um, and that's who I am. So uh, it's a big self-discovery as well. Mm. Like, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I want. It seems to me that your promo photos have clear themes occurring so in a southern setting with an instrument cello banjo guitar in a place that is imperfect like uh in the staircase of an old house or on an old porch there's the one where you're not holding an instrument where you're in that really long green aphrodite like mm -hmm. dress it, but you're at like a construction depot situation you know there's like a um, temporary wall behind you and then there's the one where you're in front of a rusty orange wall in a jumpsuit mm -hmm. where you know you don't it, you're not wearing a bra yeah and like I showed it to Lindsay I was like what do you see in this picture she's like I see orange and orange and earrings and the, all of the lines are going the same I'm like right but like nipples and <laughs> totally. and she was like Oh yeah, she, and, and you know it was so funny. I was I was pregnant during that time, so like yeah, there was just no hiding those nipples, <laughs> <laughs> even if there was one. But like, yeah. I don't know if am I often thinking there's like specific intention intentionality in those images. Well, I'm kind of anti bra. I'm changing my stance now since I stopped nursing, but <laughs> that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> I have been anti-bra in the past. Um, yeah, I think that I am interested in the spaces that feel imperfect and beautiful and kind of alarming or disarming, depending on who you are and what you're, you know, what you're seeing. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, with Capitalist Blues, I felt like we have to try to do some stuff in industrial spaces, you know, because I felt like I had a lot of like Southern living, mm. you know, beautiful uh, Spanish southern. moss and floral dresses and all this kind of stuff. Southern and living sounds like a magazine. <laughs> it is. It is oh, a it magazine. Is. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, I'm just like, yeah, just like the stereotype of like, you know, the big oak trees or whatever. And I love those. I love those mm -hmm. backgrounds, being in the swamp. Um, you know, in fact, for, for Day for the Hunter, I was like, I want to be in a boat in the swamp at the time where the swamp looks like it has all that green stuff on top, mm. you know? And I wanted it to look like that. And it came out great. And um, for Capitalist Blues, I was like, it needs to be like, more in these industrial spaces that kind of like make me uncomfortable you know mm. that needs to be like part of the part of the narrative that is part of the narrative you mm. know of the uh of the album and um and so yeah but I I always like an you know kind of fucked up looking background or like a natural <laughs> you know 
there is there is nature even in those industrial spaces mm. too you know right um looking it's at human the, nature human error <laughs> you know it's funny like I've looked at that picture of you with with the green dress on and there's like it's like a frame in the background that's shaped like a sun and I remember like looking at that picture probably like a dozen times before I realized that like you were standing in like a shitty construction site and that was just like a fuck, like a fucked up frame and yeah, back because yeah. like when I looked at it I was like oh look at how beautiful this image is and then if you look closer there's like all these imperfections you're like e <laughs> is that safe <laughs> <laughs> where's your heart at yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah I mean there's a lot of fucked up stuff in our environment that you gotta is look also beautiful yeah. you know okay. it's like weird but it's true yeah your latest project, I had notes on this, but I lost them somewhere. Um, your latest project is a theatrical piece. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about it? Yeah. Um, it's called Breaking the Thermometer to Hide the Fever. And it's a multimedia performance that my collaborators and I have been talking about it almost like a live documentary. Um, it's being commissioned by Duke Performances and inspired by an archive called the Radio Haiti Archive um, housed at their library. And so I've been doing research along with this archivist, this amazing woman, Laura Wagner, who's been kind of guiding me through these various recordings and this history and kind of processing what it all means and how to make art out of it. So it has become this sort of semi-biographical work that is based on the archive of Radio Haiti, which was a radio station that um, was opened from, well, well, owned by this man, Jean-Dominique, from 1970 to 2003. Um, he was assassinated in the year 2000, but he was like a very big voice for the promotion of democracy throughout the Duvalier regime. He, you know, him and his wife were exiled um, at least twice. Um, in the 80s and 90s, um, their radio station was nearly nearly destroyed by the Tonton Macoute, which was the uh, Duvalier's paramilitary troops in Haiti. So there's just like really a ton, a ton, a ton of layers mm -hmm. um, to this story. And it has deepened my understanding of 20th century Haitian history. You know, I was really inspired by reading about the revolution, but that was like in the 1700s, early 1800s. Fast forward 100, you know, 50 years, 170 years, and Radio Haiti is the first privately owned Creole-speaking radio station trying to promote Creole as an official language um, in a time where the media landscape was very homogenous, you know, e even in a place like Haiti where you would think... Yeah. There's so many different stories to tell, but people's stories weren't being told because they were under this repressive uh, dictatorship hmm. that silenced a lot of people and a lot of people disappeared and a lot of people were killed and a lot of people were executed and a lot of people were exiled. And so um, it kind of ties into like the Haitian American immigrant experience in that way. And it has been so intense, mm. <laughs> you know, delving into this history. And, you know, I did a couple of 
you know, one of the things that's been really interesting about the piece is like, how do we create? So the piece itself is dance, music, projection, video projection, and sound design. And it's like, how do we tell this story in a way that people are going to be able to understand it? And so that's where my, my personal stories kind of help to tie, uh, I think, all of it together. And, and it makes it something that I'm, I'm telling this story, but it's also part of my story because I'm Haitian. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's been really cool. I could talk to you forever. Yeah, we're premiering it at Duke <laughs> University. Oh, great. Um, at the beginning of March. Okay. If you want to come. Um, yeah, I definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. It's in Durham um, at uh, the theater there from March 4th to March 6th. In Durham. Mm-hmm. In Durham, NC. North Carolina. Yeah. All right. Book your flight. Okay. <laughs> I got to go to Durham. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for the lightning round? Sure. What was the first song you learned on your guitar? Oh my God. I don't know if this was the first song, but it felt like it was the first song. Stumbling by the Smashing Pumpkins. That's cool. Yeah. That's the coolest answer. <laughs> uh, Batman or Superman? That was the first time that I was like, I play the guitar. Um, <laughs> Batman or Superman? No man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your vocal register? Oh, God. I don't know. I'm wow. not a classically trained vocalist. Good but it's, it's a good one. A good range. <laughs> it's a good range. What is your karaoke song? Oh, my God. So many good ones. Janis Joplin. Come on, come on and take it. Another uh, another piece piece of my heart. Piece of my heart. Yeah. We figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, what is that song? (laughs) (laughs) Dogs or cats? Dogs. Uh, What is your coffee order? Tea. (laughs) What's your favorite U.S. city? New Orleans. Duh. Duh. First album you bought with your own money. Jewel. Nice. It's not? I mean... Uh, first concert. I think it was Jewel, actually. A double yeah. whammy. Yeah, double wow. whammy. Jewel. Dream, colla- dream collaboration. Yeah. Dream collaboration? Mm-hmm. Caetano Veloso. Um, I'm like, maybe that'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> Might. He collaborated with David Byrne. Just gotta call David Byrne. I'm gonna just hook it up somehow. Yeah. Um, are you interested in the beach or the mountains? See, in Haiti we have both, but I really, really am longing for the beach right now. Uh, flying or invisibility? Oh my god, are those even opposites? (laughs) (laughs) Flying? You choose flying. That was flying, question mark? I don't know. Um, I think flying. Yeah. I mean, most people pick flying. Yeah. Uh, What is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I mean, it's hard. I've been to a lot of beautiful places. I've been to Machu Picchu, Cusco, Peru. That was beautiful. Lisbon, Portugal. Portugal. Gorgeous. Switzerland. Every time I'm in Switzerland, I'm like... These are three very different places. Don't you think? Yeah, they're really different. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. Haiti is really beautiful, too. I think Haiti. people don't think of Haiti as such a gorgeous place, but it really is. Nice. I love Kinskov. The Citadel in Cap-Aïtien. 
Yeah, Cape Haitian is really beautiful. Great. Yeah. All right, that's it. The lightning round is done. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, and thank thanks. you. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey this week, along with Laura McCarthy. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does all our music. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. So delighted to have you here. Thank you for listening all the way to the very, very end. I will remind you that Basic Folk beanies are available at cindyhouse.net. If you see me in person, ask me for a magnet, and we'll see if I have one in my pocket for you, because I do have Basic Folk magnets um, for those uh, that I meet IRL. Basic Folk is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. We're very happy to be amongst these podcasters, uh, and we'll speak with you next week. And you can find show notes for this episode of Basic Folk at my website, cindyhouse.net. Are you still listening? It's so nice. You're so nice. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.